Beastie Boys, mhm, Beastie Boys, mhm, Beastie Boys, mhm, Beastie Boys, mhm. Stefan should be wearing a mask and is sitting far too close to me for the amount of congested his cough sounds. This is the Green Majority, CIUT 89.5 FM, or your local community radio station, or on your podcast platform, Harbinger Media Network. My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. Stefan's microphone is not even plugged in. Stefan is touching me with his skin. Hello. Stefan Hostetter, David Hostetter, Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour is not here. She is a climate criminal, having flown for no reason but pleasure to New Orleans. She's off the show. Don't say that. People are going to believe it. I'll message her about it. Jesus Christ. What? Why am I here if I if I get censored for saying the tiniest little frickin' thing? Why am I even attempting to help you stooges with this? If my ver- if the very essence of my soul is to be colonized, corporatized, stuck in this little box that you would have me silently meditate in for eternity. That's that's what the show feels like? No, that's what your strictures have always felt like. Your little rules, your little walls, your little compartmentalizations. Stefan will be interviewing, I've forgotten the name. Bushra Asgar. Bushra Asgar from? She is the Toronto Youth Climate Corps organizer with the Climate Emergency Unit. We're talking about the Youth Climate Corps, which got a big boost Last couple of weeks. Wait, wait, wait. She, she's American? No. I'm talking about the Canadian effort to create one, which was still boosted by the fact the American created one, but obviously work to be done here. Yeah, and, and even, even, I don't know, like even this article you sent me on Axios about the climate core is, is essentially saying Biden's just doing it to, to fairy favor well, and to get his poll numbers up. Well, they're running a bunch of ads talking about it. As a way to try to help his re-election, but yes, but they are actually doing it. It's only twenty thousand people, so it's not huge, but it hopefully lays a foundation that could be then grown. Twenty thousand for the entire country. Yeah. Then what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to just run around fighting fires or something? Well, it depends on the area. Like the idea of a youth climate corps, more generally, I'm not going to speak specifically to the folks in the states right now, but the idea is that they could be doing anything from, you know, wetlands restoration for places that need that to protect them from further extreme weather. They could be doing retrofits on buildings. You know, they could be doing renewable energy work. And the best version would be that, you know, you'd have a huge swath that the federal government would pay for, and then they would all work within their own communities to do what that what their own community specifically needs. Now, 20,000 people is not enough to do that, obviously. And so this is not the scale we need in any way, shape, or form. However, the fact that they've even picked it up and run with it, you know, was something that most people probably didn't think was even possible in the last, you know, four years. To what degree do you think is just... Everything that Western capitalist democracies do, bad. <laughs> Everything? <laughs> everything they do is bad, and we should just dismantle them entirely because everything they do legitimizes themselves. Yeah, I mean, I can understand and appreciate that problem. It's you know, I mean, it's hard to say, right? It's hard to actually imagine what a successful 
complete transformation of an economy could look like. Now, there are places in the world that have successfully built out systems that have brought them much closer to something that you could consider just by investing in social supports and while keeping some version of a social democracy intact. What do you mean by social democracy? You mean capitalism? Well, no, I mean like a, I mean, I guess the, they would exist in a capitalist system. I have a hard time imagining how many places you would in the world you could, you could truly consider not living in capitalism. You know, even places that are outright communist, like China says it is, still drastically exist in a very capitalist system, right? And so it's sort of hard to imagine what the whole world completely ridding itself of any sort of market mechanism would look like. But I do think that there is examples of effective, positive, deep reforms that states have done. You're suggesting you're suggesting the Chinese Communist Revolution. No, is merely a deep reform. No, 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 no. I wasn't using China. Did not become a social democracy. I'm not talking like I'm. I'm saying that. E- I'm saying that. While, yes, all the social democracies I am referring to, you know, like there's some inspiring work happening in, in South America right now. You know, there's there are other places that where, you know, some really interesting things are happening. And even but saying that while they don't matter or they're not as important because they still exist in capitalism, I think is a hard criteria because of the fact that even autocratic places that have, you know, distinctly communist goals are still existing in a capitalist system in some ways. And so my point was more so that capitalism is so hegemonic it is hard to escape it regardless of what you're doing and so i wouldn't throw out you know some of the great work that's being done in with like deep reformers in some of these other states because it still exists in this hegemonic capitalist system that we can't sort of imagine our way out it's just it's just that like it we rely on a consumption model which is destroying the planet, right? And so if you're not going to change the consumption model, then if, if you change the consumption model, you change the the whole economic structure. For sure, yeah. And I think that's fair, right? And I think that's really hard to, to navigate. And that's why I think something like the Climate Corps is actually somewhat interesting, because if you really committed to something like a jobs guarantee, which a civilian Climate Corps could ultimately turn into then you could imagine a state where you could begin to actually maybe pull yourself out of this debt-driven, consumerism-driven world because you'd actually have a state with enough you know, human power and ability that you could begin to imagine a world that would actually sort of prioritize everyone's well-being over the ability to buy as much stuff as possible. Etc. Like one thing that we talk about in the interview with Bouchera is how a successful youth climate corps that's of actual scale would the would allow for you know the state to do some of these massive projects that would have to happen to get out of this consumptive model, right? Like you need just an enormous amount of high speed rail, for example. You need an enormous amount of of renovation just seems as though what you're saying is you want you're just trying to do everything in your power to not have a bloody revolution it's i mean i I don't think i think you're against bloody revolution and i'm starting to suspect why that might be in it i mean 
it I will admit that I would if if there's a way to avoid a bloody revolution, I would like to try to find that way. Yes. I think I would I can I can say All right, that. At least we know where we stand. Yeah. So we're just gonna mention a few articles here before Stefan has his interview. Klippenstein, friend of the show, sent us this article from Dame magazine, says the media is bum bumming people out and that's intentional. And so they're just saying like there's too many there's too much doomerism in what they call legacy media. So the biggest media companies with the largest reach, they're they're blame, blaming for saying too much negative stuff about the state of the world and therefore helping out the people in power. Implicitly, they're saying right-wing media owners. Mm. But most Republican, not Democrat right-wing, but Republican right-wing are being helped by this doomerism. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of ridiculous it's kind of ridiculous because they're just saying like don't be so upset you know things can be changed but in the article itself the only thing they can conceive of changing is not electing republicans that's like the only thing the article will will pose as a solution but i mean like i i do think we've set up a media system that undeniably highlights the ways things don't work and does a relatively poor job in telling the stories of people who are trying to make things better. That's why the existence of solutions journalism has sort of arisen over the past five, ten years. And it's a lot easier, and you'll probably get more clicks from people, giving them the sort of simplicity of how things bad things are. Because honestly, part of it also is things are really bad. Well, exactly. So this this article wants people to be gaslighted into being like, just vote for Democrats and forget about it. But, like, I mean, I think there's something different between because one thing you can't allow to happen, for sure, is the idea that nothing can be done and therefore votes don't matter. Like th- two things can be true, right? One can be true that the Democrats and you know Trudeau can be fall fall into this count, and so many others are not doing nearly enough, and things are getting drastically worse. You know, I think one of the stories we're talking about later is that emissions literally rose in Canada this year, and and if you look at some of the heat maps or the, sorry, the, some of the graphs that show average temperature, we are almost off the charts. At the same time, if you sort of let that become, okay, then nothing we can do can protect us, like that we are actually doomed, then that is only going to help the sort of eco-fascist movement that you can see is coming, right? Like, I mean, you're already seeing it in many of the European states that are becoming drastically more fascist in, as as climate migrants show up. Or, I mean, even if you want to talk about the Democrats, the ways that they are carrying on and keeping on many of some of the Trump stuff in terms of migrants at the, at the southern border is all pushed, you know, by climate change. And this idea that we cannot you know, handle this many people or we cannot help this many people. It's it, So we can't we can't let ourselves get into the zero-sum game. Like, the zero-sum game, I think, is going to only lead to conservative and worse outcomes for everyone. And so you have to push back and at least accept the fact that, like, better is possible. And you have to believe that better is possible. I, I think there's too much negative news. Like, I, I go to my elevator and there's a screen on my elevator saying someone was stabbed to death in Arkansas or something. But when you, when you, when you watch like media that people watch, like I, I don't know the state's media landscape so much, but like my problem with something like CBC and PBS is like it's too milk toast. It's too 
just keep going. Right. And and this article itself is just and it's it's citing like these little tweets about like people being too cynical online. It's like people being cynical online is not the problem that we need to defeat here. <laughs> but I would but I would point to this obviously legacy media piece of uh doomerist propaganda <laughs> from the Guardian <clears throat> which for some reason needed to print needed to publish an article called called supercontinent could make earth uninhabitable in 250 million years study predicts. <laughs> what is the point of publishing this article? Extreme temperatures, radiation, and collapse of food supply created by merging continents would cause mass extinction. This is a hypothetical doom event in 250 million years, and they've printed a huge, hideous, barren wasteland. It's just like, why is anybody reporting on this? This is, this is part of the cult of science, I think. We just need to report on everything any scientist has an inkling of. Like, no scientist even like, can say for certain this would happen. Like, it's, it's a clear speculation. And so this kind of stuff, like this article specifically, I can see maybe like the argument behind it being like, or for its existence from the from the perspective of this Dame article being like, this is made intentionally to bum people out and to, to lower people's morale, you know. Right. But like very few stuff, I, I, I like, mostly I think we have media designed to confuse people. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think as we lose people in media, you get more and more people just publishing either things that they're encouraged to by the advertisers or things that they get handed to by the police is going to create a cycle where the stories that you will get will sort of consistently tell types of stories. I guess, yeah, this article, you know, should it exist? Probably not. But also the only reason I'm reading it is because it was included in the Guardian's green light newsletter. Right. So the Guardian considers this to be environmental news. Right. It's just completely absurd that they would consider this to be ecological news that the Earth could could die in 250 million years. <laughs> it just has nothing to do with... I mean, if we make it 250 million years, kudos, humanity. Should we move on? <clears throat> uh, yeah, especially because you're already going to run out of time. So, I mean, I don't even know why we're mentioning this, to be honest. This is like... There's an article from the Energy Mix, mix Shell CEO... <clears throat> doubles down on renewable cuts. So here's another gas company investing less in renewables than they said that they would. But like, what's the point of reporting on this? Because all no gas company is is going to speak honestly about their plans for the future. Right, but they're literally doing it. Like like what's what's interesting about this particular move by Shell? It's similar to the move by Suncor. Is that three four years ago, oil and gas companies were definitely trying to position themselves as energy companies rather than oil companies. And somehow in the last five years, they've just decided that they can be oil companies again. And that speaks to the actual lack of power. Well, they're also making a lot of money. Well, sure, yeah. In oil right now. Well, exactly. You know, and they are being pushed up partially because Saudi Arabia is happy to have the price go up, which is increasing inflation across the globe, which then makes it harder to build new things and delays how long we are able to, or delays the production and and growth of renewable industries and stuff like that. Like, all of this is connected in small ways. Like, the point of this, I think why I highlighted this to talk about, for a long time, the fight was to remove the social license from oil and gas companies to exist. And the fact that CEO after CEO after CEO and the fact that former oil executive is going is heading up COP this year spells a, a a loss of some of that fight. I think that we're not 
successfully sort of pushing this, them back. But what is this notion of social license, though? I mean, doesn't there, just, there, doesn't there have to be actual structural power wielded against them? It can't just be what people feel, whether they should exist or not, because they're not going anywhere. There's so much power. How can you defeat their structural power with soft power? They've successfully done a number of things, like you know, you, you're attacking insurance companies for protecting oil pipelines. You're attacking the banks for funding you know, new new wells. You're attacking you know the oil companies themselves for poisoning people. All of these things. Well, and have, here they are making record profits. Well, though. again, it, this is part of the problem. It has not been. They are so entrenched. The, you know, the strength of oil that has on the world is astronomical. Right. And so the fact that it's hard to defeat them is not a surprise. But that doesn't mean the fight is not worth having because eventually they will lose. Because the one thing that is true. Eventually they will. But like when, though, when everybody loses, is that when they lose? No. I mean, like as we successfully continue to move off oil for vehicles and for transportation, at some point, there will be stranded assets in the oil fields, and people will know that. And the moment that that happens, you suddenly gets the whole market gets really rocky. And you've, we've seen it happen with coal. You know, coal seemed like it was around forever, and then as people start moving off it, as things start getting cheaper, as other people start making other, other decisions, and as people sort of start fighting coal companies, Suddenly, investment money for new coal uh, out for new coal p- p- mines or new coal power plants dried up. But and our so- model will still be one of massive overconsumption because we'll just be mining more stuff for non-oil energy for cars. I mean that 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 that's why more than just attacking the oil industry is necessary, right? Like but, there's but, many but, other pieces of this thing. I'm just saying, like fighting the oil industry with public sentiment doesn't seem like a terribly useful attempt. I mean, you ha- you fight on every front you have, right? Like, you, it's not like that's the only front. But you only have a limited amount of energy. Putting in energy towards a lever that is not necessarily useful is a waste of energy. But I think that you've seen a lot of successes in the fights against the oil industry. You know, pipeline fights that have prevented pipelines from existing. Offshore drilling fights that have prevented... prevented you know, extra drilling to exist in the Arctic and stuff like that. Like, the oil industry has lost many battles, uh, largely due to public sentiment. But and their so, profits have not suffered, nor has their power. I mean, their their power certainly has. Previously, they everything they wanted, they'd get. And now, increasingly, they are not getting the pipelines they want. You know, like, everyone, myself included, thought Keystone XL would get, would get built. And because of the fight against it, it's not there. And that is preventing them from making you know money like one of the things that oil and gas company has done in the last 10 15 years is that because of fracking and advanced oil recovery a lot of new oil places have shown up in the states that did not exist previously and so that is complicating i think the the narrative but there have been many successful fights against the oil industry and i think you have to keep fighting all right well we'll look at this so canada's emissions are up 2.1% rise in Canada's uh, greenhouse gas emissions last year. Oil and gas emissions and buildings. And also, it's come out that uh, even the Alberta Energy Regulator knew about this major poisoning of, uh, of groundwater in Alberta. Uh, the imperial oil seepage into groundwater uh, did not tell the First Nation 
the Alberta government and the and the Imperial com- and the and and the company Imperial Oil knew about the groundwater leak, but only only recognized it once it became once it resurfaced. So it's like these people will do anything in their power not to solve this problem. So like I just don't I don't understand why we're even thinking about anything except for dismantling their structural power by whatever means we have. And those means might require armed resistance. Clearly, the tactics that have been used so far have not successfully dismantled the oil industry, right? And the last 10, 15 years of Canadian politics has certainly not shown a willingness for elected officials to really do this. The fact remains that oil is a somewhat dangerous investment for people because of the fact that it's based off 20 years of future pumping. And so the value is very much reliant on this continuing as it has for at least 20 years from now and all of the oil that they have being be able to be pumped and sold. And so there will be a moment when I think the oil industry will be weakened. I mean, the strategy is just waiting for market forces. Like you're just waiting for market forces. I mean, no, I mean, you're, but clearly people are not only like, that's, again, that's one part of it. The, again, all of the oil, all of the pipeline fights, all of the attempts to find other ways to make people not have to use oil to get around and to live, etc. right? Like we've seen what happens when people even try to block things with Standing Rock, for example, right? Like that was, they weren't armed, but they were then. Cl- it was then claimed that they were armed, and then they were. They have been, uh, you know, vilified like they were. <laughs> All you're saying is that failure is 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 indicative of of not needing to try. No, like, I'm not. What I'm, are you saying? I'm not saying. I didn't you are think... doing. You are doing all kinds of intellectual backflips to avoid the notion of revolution. You are anti-revolutionary, counter-revolutionary. I am, and you are clearly of the centrist liberal class. Wow. <laughs> who will choke out true progress uh, wherever it appears? I do not believe that is the case. I think that the only way to actually take this on is to build collective power in every possible place you can and so and then use the moments you are given to attempt to push for transformative reforms. You know, like I but transform there's no such thing as a transformative reform. There's no such thing as a radical reform. A reform is not changing the system. All of the significantly successful revolutions have come from building a, a large, interdisciplinary, multifaceted movement and base and building up from there. The idea that you can just be like, what we need is revolution and not think that that revolution does not include work like building a youth climate corps or work like finding ways to do mutual aid amongst activist groups or showing up for and building capacity for indigenous rights organizations to that's not that's not that's not what's on question here what's on question is your notion that the oil market will collapse on its own what you're proposing is a thing that's even further from possibility which is a extremely coordinated militarized effort to attack state-supported, massively powerful industry without any other attempts to weaken it through all of the other routes that currently are being underdone. Like, 
there's a path where you can successfully do this, which is by weakening its social license, by weakening its its position within its own markets, by making it less needed for all of the things that we are doing, by you know removing its power to influence policy and in governments you know in all these other ways and then you know having enough different places to push it over the edge that is a strategy that's currently ongoing and is happening i'm just saying we need a theory that specifically dismantles Ill- the illegitimate power structures you know specifically attacks those rather than working around them so that they change themselves from within it's like something something that's specifically attacking you know something that something that's actually deconstructing the power rather than just sort of walking around the power like the walls of Jericho or something. Well, but I mean, like, that's exactly what the pipeline fights have been. That is exactly what the... Which you said was just useless because they failed. That's not what I said. I said that the... that. That was an example of of how strongly the state will push back at an attempt to to do that, and so to rely exclusively on that without working in ways to reduce power the power it has on the state is going to be is, is you know is going to lead to a lot of arrests and 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 livelihoods reduced. I'm not I just, no I just kind of, feel, of I just kind of feel like they are the state. I feel like the large corporations are the state, but they're pretending not to be. But, I mean, and they're confusing everybody with their with their anti-political stuff. But I think that if you if you accept that they're both the state and that you can't separate the the people the regulators from the regulated, right? Like if you accept that that is it, then yes, then the only theoretical answer would be to overthrow the state itself and presume that you could then build up a new version of a thing that would not get captured by the oil industry all over again. Once you did that, which seems to me maybe arguably as unlikely as that you as the fact that you could potentially pry the regulator from the regulated across, you know, separate those two things so that the organization that is meant to look after people is actually going to do so and will actually prevent, you know, the level of destruction that someone comes into doing. And, you know, that's not happening now, obviously. But I think you have to believe that that is possible. Or, and if you don't, then the other option is some version of, of a revolution that feels further away to me than, than other ways you could get at, like, at least beginning to reduce our emissions, which is what we need today. I say we need a revolution, and it can't be merely materialistic, though. It needs to be... It needs to be spiritual because all this all this communist talk about all people being one and is not possible without uh, a profound spiritual insight. We will be taking a music break and come back with Stefan interviewing Bushra Asgar, the Toronto Youth Climate Corps organizer with the Climate Emergency Unit. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of thy night what a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry if you are just joining us my name is Stephen hostetter i am joined by busher asgar the toronto youth climate corps organizer for the climate emergency unit thanks so much for being here thank you for having me Can you give us a backstory of how you got into climate organizing? 
like I've always been a part of my my student union as an undergraduate student, as a graduate student. Yeah, like the spaces that we are in, you know, organizing them is like kind of like we all have access to those spaces, like whether they're student unions or tenants union, our, our work unions. That's how I got involved. And then in 2019, I worked on the federal election as part of a get out the vote campaign. It was nonpartisan and, and just trying to get the youth vote out. And I think at that time, I, I worked for an, uh, an organization called uh, New Majority Now. It used to be Future Majority. And it was one of the coolest campaigns. And at that time, I guess I got or a lot of my colleagues were climate organizers, actually. I think we all came from different organizing backgrounds. And then from that point on, I've just kind of gotten involved very adjacently to climate movement organizers and just like learning a lot about what they're doing and and trying to do as much as I can, uh, whether it's like organizing actions with 350 or organizing with Climate Justice Toronto. It's such a critical time right now to to do climate organizing, looking looking for for options of work that, you know, are meaningful where I am investing my labor into doing like meaningful work. And I think it just the the Youth Climate Corps campaign kind of almost fell into my lap. And yeah, it really resonated with me because it said that intersection of finding meaningful work, which is really difficult to find as a young person, right? As a run, as a young person right now, and and also doing organizing work in our communities. I'm curious because obviously, as an environment show, we are most often talking to folks who exclusively have lived in the climate organizing space. But you come from a student organizing space. You have all these other experiences in organizing different communities, and I'm curious what you've learned in those experiences that you're bringing to this work and and how it sort of maybe changes how you think about organizing. Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, I mean, it's my dream for the for the Canadian student movement to be to have teeth, like really sharp teeth where we're able to actually bring our demands for free tuition into into materialization. I think what I've learned from those spaces is just like how brilliant university administrations are at like waiting out the turnover of like union executives, you know, and and the creation of committees. I mean, yeah, if university administrations are good at anything, it's just like creating that committee to basically silence a movement, you know, and and just yeah, waiting out. I mean, we see that even with the some of the divestment movements. For example, like I currently also work at a student association at Concordia. And what we've seen is that the university administration like kind of committed to the divestment of fossil fuels. But then years later, they have they've tried to invest that money into like military stuff. So like I would say the information like that intergenerational knowledge passing down is so integral and I don't think it's just only for student union organizing or university organizing it's I think in any movement like how important that is like kind of organizer to organizer intergenerational like passing down of just what has happened because yeah like I think people in power will always use that to their advantage that people will burn out and and they'll have new faces you know and they'll pretend like nothing has ever happened so it's really interesting to see that divestment movement kind of getting more teeth at Concordia specifically with new students who are like, actually, no, we're not letting this go. And, and you can't just give up this commitment and we're going to see it, see it through and like new people kind of continuing that. 
And of course, you can imagine and you see how that could work in so many other spaces, right? Like wherever institutions can say, ah, yes, we hear you. We've done it. Stop thinking about it. And then find these different ways around it later on or slow it down or be like, oh, actually, we only meant a part of this. You know, the movement sort of naturally, movement building so naturally, and I think this is something that we as a climate movement could probably learn or should be trying to fix is so often our movements are sort of like waves, right? They, they, and that they come up, big wave of energy, big wave of energy, success or, or get some action or do something and then, and, then, and then dissolve in a way that that does not necessarily bring us consistent power so that when a institution like Concordia decides to not do something later on, you haven't actually built the structural ongoing power that can hold it to account. You've actually lost that power. You got you to almost start from the, again, the beginning again to be like, oh, no, wait, you actually didn't do what we asked you to do. Yeah, I think that the two definitely had there's so much parallels there where, yeah, you feel like you're constantly starting from scratch, like every every time. I think that that has a big reason why people do burnout. Yeah, because that's a lot of work. I mean, especially I think starting a campaign and like the the beginning stages of building that momentum, I find that it's always the hardest. Because it's it's almost like facilitating a workshop, you know, like the first like maybe the first half is always the hardest. But then once you hit that arc, like it almost rolls, right? There's like a natural progression of it. But yeah, one of the coolest, I think, campaigns I've ever been a part of was actually my graduate student association and was in my student association that did it. We actually occupied our cafeteria and went to the school called the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland, like kind of at the heart of the United Nations. Like it's almost like a theater school for the UN. It's really a really interesting space. Like you have people who kind of become practitioners and write, join like the United Nations Industrial Complex. And then you have a group of like academics who are like very much critiquing it but then also they're all involved in the same you know complex like speaking of the same panels like going to the same ecosystem there's so many interesting like neoliberal issues there it's a like a public private partnership like the the university itself so it gets a lot of public funding from the swiss government but very little accountability and it, it like very it's in this liminal space where they have this like American model of teaching, but they don't really live by the Swiss rules. 98% of the students are international. So it's just the environment is great to be like not transparent and unequal. You have the lowest like paid TAs and the highest paid professors in Europe, you know? So it's just like wild how, how these like environments that are built, of course, over, I mean, it's not like magic that we get there. I mean, this is, these types of environments also, I think, show up in like our everyday lives. Like I think in terms of like I'm looking at, you know, we have rent strikes going on in Toronto and a lot of like these developers get money, like public money from the city to build these housings. But then they they tend to like kind of not really be responsive to the public. Like it's very much in that like private industrious way of thinking and they forget that they were given money that was like public money to build this and that at the end of the day you know they have there should be some like mission there but it's it's very like forgetful and i think it's this like era of like neoliberal thought that's like in our education in the way that we build housing and in the way that i think sometimes we even like present climate solutions 
I mean, it, it's everywhere, right? It's amazing about this is that the further and longer you think about it, you know, you get to the point where, oh, yes, the entire oil industry in Canada was basically started because the government created multiple oil companies in the 1970s and invested a whole bunch of money to get it started. And now where is all the profit going? Outside of the country. You know, and the same can be said about so many, so much medical research is supported, again, by the by universities, institutions. And then suddenly there's a patent and it's now owned by, by a big pharmaceutical company. Like the amount of times we'll use these ways that industry will absorb public dollars and then privatize the profit is exceptional. And so I do think that leads us to this question of, you know, I would say foundational types of shifts of thinking. And I think that's a that's so I'm going to try to use that to sort of bring us towards the the project that you're working on because I do think that the idea around the you know, the climate emergency unit as a whole, but also the Youth Climate Corps more specifically, is about foundationally changing how we act and how we think about the the work. Right? There's like it's all, not only one part. I'm not pretending this is going to be this is a solution to everything, but I do think it's important that there is like a part of this that is actually being like, no, we need to give young people another path into this. We need to give young. We need to change how we even think about what it is to be a person working on climate change. And we need to come up with new ways to address it. So before we get into exactly what the Youth Climate Corps is, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see the role of youth more generally in the climate movement. Yeah, I think, of course, at the moment, I see anytime I'm at an action, I see really, really old people and I see really, really young people. It's so, I mean, maybe everyone else is working. I don't know. I mean, but that's not to say that young people are not working. I feel like a lot of us have like three jobs and like 20 like volunteer commitments, you know, but we still like make make it work. But yeah, I think there there's a special space for youth in the climate movement, which is very much, I think it, it is that it's so existential. It's it's our life. It's like our decisions about like having children. And from from the Anishinaabe perspective, we have the seven grandfather teachings, like where every everyone you have to think about the seven generation, which is not a concept that many settler Canadians are aware of. You know, we don't we, we always think of right now here in the present moment and about ourselves. But I think that because it's so real, young people, young people get that aspect because we're like living through planetary collapse in real time and like we don't we don't have the privilege of being like oh yeah well we'll probably retire actually most likely we don't even know if we're gonna be retiring by 60 you know and like where are these union jobs that everyone's talking about it's funny because i feel like i've always worked adjacent or at a union but have never had a unionized position which is so it's like wild you know so yeah i think there's this like really special moment and I, I have a lot of friends who who call themselves like 29 babies with uh, 2019 babies which is like I mean I'm a little bit older than them because I'm not a 2019 baby but like they're they're referred to this like group of people who were, whose radicalizing moment was like the climate protests of 2019 you know and I think mobilizing around climate right now like everyone thinks back to those days and is remember when there were like hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Montreal and like Toronto and 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 British and Vancouver. And I feel like in Canada specifically and, and globally, you know, with like people like Greta, yeah, the youth are, they're kind of the ones who are like speaking truth to power more than any other group is. Unfortunately, I think at the same time, like we are being actively infantilized. 
the campaign that I'm working on is asking and demanding a youth climate core at the same time, I don't I don't really want to call myself a youth. I'm a 27 year old. I am an adult. You know, I want to be at the adult table. I don't want to be at the youth table. And I feel like that's like also the difference, you know, where I feel like it's it's a way in which like they kind of be, they like they as in like people in positions of power are able to say, well, you know, they're just young and like they have their bushy tails and like they don't know the reality. I, it's funny, I've been talking recently a bunch with people who are working in sort of the space between mental health and youth and climate change. And something that keeps coming up is this fact that we want so constantly when we think about mental health to sort of prescribe the concept of therapy or of medication or of ways to sort of solve people's distress. You know, that works for many people. And there are many things that people should talk about in therapy. And, you know, I fully support going to therapy. At the same time, no amount of therapy is going to solve the fact that if you look at some of the graphs for this year's climate crisis, we've jumped so out of whack from every other proportional year. We have so much less sea ice than we have any other year. People are breathing in smoke across the country. Being distressed is a very rational experience right now. And it's not necessarily galvanizing to be distressed. It's not necessarily, you know, something that can get people to do action. But one of the proven big ways to combat this is giving people a way to take action in, in, in fighting climate change. And so one of the things I think so interesting about the Youth Climate Corps is that it gives people would be a very easy way for people to be like, you know what, I'm 20. I'm really distressed about climate change. And I have, you know, health. I'm going to go spend a year or two in the youth climate corps. I'm going I'm to do my part. I'm going to learn a skilled trade. I'm going to do some stuff. And, and, and I come out of it at least knowing more about how I can work towards this issue, having done some good and giving people an outlet towards action. Because, my God, are we bad at that right now? If you're a 20, if you're a young person who doesn't know the ecosystems that exist in climate work, it's not necessarily that easy. People can tell you to, like, go to a rally or find your local group and some of them are amazing many of them are amazing but all a lot of them are all volunteers who are burnt out like everybody else and don't have good onboarding systems or etc right and so the idea that you could create a space where you could have the government which has the actual resources to do this effectively could give you know tens of thousands of young people an opportunity to get not only the chance to work on climate change but also a chance to like address something that that that's deep-seated fear in themselves is really a, a win-win you know like we're we're taught we talk about sort of the youth mental health crisis and the climate crisis as separate issues so often whereas very very much at least in some instances they are the same problem or at least very overlap i think i think you you said it right it is such a win-win-win you know i mean for for youth isolation for community work i mean i think i i organized because i had this like deep-seated anxiety and I can't do anything about it but get involved and meet people and 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 go to events you know like that's like this is like how I deal with with my worries about about these issues so the youth climate core I mean wow yeah it's this counter offer that I guess we have not seen anywhere else it's this counter offer to like the current state that we're in and 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 the offer is that Anyone under 35 would be able to join a, a youth climate corps that would be like, na it would be nationally funded. 
by the federal government where any, yeah, anyone under 35 could come and serve and they would be able to get on the job training in jobs related to the climate crisis. So, you know, it could be like retrofitting like buildings. I mean, it could be like related to learning conservation systems in your local neighborhood. At the end of the day, you would go into your community to do climate adaptation and mitigation work. Part of the issue right now is that we are really disconnected with our environments and and like where we live, you know? And I think, I mean, I'm a I'm a first generation settler in Canada and I think I can definitely speak to that. You know, my parents didn't have the vocabulary to even teach me about my surroundings so much. It's very been like very much been like self-taught. And what I wouldn't do to to give a like if I were to be given this chance, like I would take it because I want to be more connected to nature. And and I think being paid to do this type of work, yes, I think it would a hundred percent help our mental health, like to a wild degree. I mean, it kind of reminds me of how after Second World War, like where women had been like given the chance to work in the labor force, they things kind of went back to business as usual. And they were basically told to go back to being like domestic workers at, at home and, you know, no longer needed in society. And a lot of the, I mean, antidepressants were basically created to stop women from being unhappy at home, you know? And so I feel like I definitely feel that as a young person, you know, the, the solution to racism isn't therapy. It's like a system change. And and I think we're we're at a place where we have compounding social issues that are really like whether it's the climate crisis and we know at the core of it, for me, the way that I see the climate crisis is an extension of colonialism. It's an extension of settler colonialism. So for me to get connected to like the, the places that I live in and learning more about them and making sure that I have a deeper connection to my ecosystem like that's a way in which like I help my climate anxiety feel better you know and I can see the ways in which this would help young people and a program like this really doesn't exist like I think one of the only other types of programs that are like barrier free entry on the job training for anyone under 35 would be the military and you know unfortunately in Canada we don't have a civil civil corps like we don't have the military but like a civilian counterpart of it you know and like I think if we were able to commit to a program like this it could be really brilliant because I think uh and I mean actually part of like our this program like it comes out of Seth Klein's book who's our team lead at the climate emergency unit and in his book he talks about the second world war you know and he talks about how Canada was only 11 million people at that time and 64% of young people at that time decided to join the the efforts the war efforts to to basically fight fascism at that time and 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 we at the climate emergency and I think each of us whatever campaign we're working on really believe that if our government and partners showed up to give this counteroffer and make it a reality people in large swaths would show up to join it does begin to give people a way into action. And that I think is something that a lot of people are looking for. And the other thing I, what I, that I find particularly interesting about it and useful about it is that it also gives the country, so-called Canada, the ability to do big things because they have a workforce of people they've trained to do big things. You know, like we've on the show previously, we've talked about the unbelievably huge effort needed to retrofit the buildings in this country. It's 
astronomical, right? Like it's millions of millions of buildings that need to be retrofitted over the next 20 years. And we don't have close to the capacity of people able to do this. And even organizing people to around doing it, if you're trying to organize the private sector, would take an incredible amount of work. And so what does it look like to have 10,000 young people that you've trained move from community to community just doing these upgrades, right? Like you, there's some really cool work done about prefab that you can build beforehand and then drop it on that Nova Scotia is, has been talking about. And there are other ideas out there that you could find ways to make it faster at least. But like right now we can't do so much stuff because the state itself doesn't have the capacity to do so much. And this would address that, right? Like you could train people for exactly, we spend so much time trying to incentivize people to do stuff instead of just getting people to do stuff that like the idea that you could just train people for the exact skills you need and send them out to do the work you need to get done is shouldn't be revolutionary, but a hundred percent is. And also the amount of times, you know, I'm, I'm listening in on webinars on climate change or yeah, like I was just recently at a call and everyone was saying like, Everything around them, they were talking about youth not being utilized. They were, they were talking about youth isolation. They were talking about the jobs that are needed in Ontario specifically or in Canada right now to do like energy audits, et cetera. And I'm like, just sitting there as a young person, wow, it would be really great if we could just get trained, you know? And like, even like living through like this, this past summer, like we had one of the like worst wildfire seasons. We keep having this. It's not going to be a shot next year when it's even worse than this year. We keep having to bring firefighters from abroad, from like South Africa, from Australia to help us. And, you know, I was at Humber College, like talking to a firefighting student who's like telling me, how many thousands of dollars she's having to pay for her college course and how even after she finishes her course at Humber, she has to pay for external accreditation to make her application competitive. Meanwhile, if we had a youth climate core, we would be able to use these young people. We would be like, hey, come join, get paid to learn this skill and go do this work in your community. It's I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's kind of like how you talked earlier about that like ideological shift, like the foundational shift that that we're talking about, because governments, especially ours here right now, like we love like giving up what we need to do to a nonprofit, to an external authority, to the private sector, instead of doing it in-house. And I think doing that is a disservice because you seed away accountability Every time you do that. And, and I think that's actually one of the one of the core things about this program. If we were to win it in the way that we envision it, it would be in-house. It would create new public institutions that would be funded at the scale of the emergency that we're living through, you know, and having a youth climate core that would be that large in-house. It would be like it would be revolutionary for Canada. A hundred percent. And so the news of a youth climate core has been something we've talked a couple times on the show. And you're building slowly towards another sort of big push that's coming up in later fall. But you got a huge boost, I would imagine, from the more recent news out of the States when Biden announced that they would start a youth climate corps there. Now, 20,000 people is not huge, but, you know, we so often copy our laws from other places. You know, you see, you see Bill C-18 is basically just a copying of the Australian bill around media things. And so the fact that you see examples of this drastically, I think, increases the chance it will happen. You know, the even something here in Ontario for folks, 
back in the day, you might remember the, the Green Energy Act that was brought in maybe 15, 20 years ago. And that was just a copy of a German plan that drastically increased renewable energy built there that someone found out when they, when they went over. And so the fact that they are going to try it in the States, I think it can only be a positive on the push. So I'm curious, how do you feel about that move? And is that changing your tactics at all? Or is it, yeah, how is it impacting your, the way you're thinking about this? The boost has been really great. I think for my own morale, like it makes it, it makes a goal post like almost achievable. You know, I mean, oftentimes I'm like doing things. I'm like, I don't know if we're going to win, but we just, you got to do it. It's really interesting because, I mean, shout out to Sunrise and like the the amount of organizing that's gone on behind this. I mean, you know, they they've they've done hunger strikes. They've done like long marches. I mean, it's like really. And I think you can see the ways in which um, they have been ignored by their government, like in in, in many ways. Um, So I think it's. I, I wonder how much of this win is potentially because they're like entering a time of their election, you know, the United States. And and I feel particularly optimistic about our campaign also because I think that youth in Canada currently are feeling just as much neglected by the Trudeau government that I think that, you know, and we are also heading towards a federal election, not 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 too long from now. So I think potentially it could be something that, you know, we could see if they really want that support. It's been really nice to see the, Brit- uh, the British Columbia Green Party putting out like that the Youth Climate Corps as part of their platform, as well as Nate Erkskin, who's running for the Ontario leadership right now, having the YCC on his platform. I think we at Climate Emergency Unit definitely feel like we need to hear the echoes of climate core from every level possible and also from the grassroots angle. At the moment, our pilot in Toronto is very much focused on creating a, a mobilization here in Ontario because there hasn't really been prior organizing on this here as it has been on the West Coast. So we're really excited to see what that turnout will look like. And even meeting with actually Minister Ian's policy advisors in a week about the Youth Climate Corps. So very optimistic. Amazing. And so, yeah, let's get into the sort of organizing you're doing right now. How are you building, you know, right now in Toronto and in the surrounding area towards Youth Climate Corps? Yeah, so we have this mock cover letter action that we're doing, which is super creative. We have a website called Good Green Jobs for All, and there we're collecting these mock cover letters for a youth climate corps that doesn't exist because we're hoping to take uh, a thousand of these applications from young people in Toronto to Minister Ian, Minister Freeland, and and basically on November 30th saying, hey, a youth climate corps doesn't exist, but here's our application for it. And we hope to see you, you know, announce this and like hoping for various other events kind of in the lead up to this day of action that we're organizing on November 30th with our partners. And like we we hope and we are working on like a cross-sectoral campaign. So really engaging like graduate students, the arts community. We've been talking to, of course, like people in the climate ecosystem, but also labor groups and, and faith groups trying to work with as many people as possible who a YCC resonates with, but who would also be positively impacted by the creation of such a program. Amazing. And so I think you sort of answered in that 
way, my next question, which is how can folks get involved and support? But perhaps there are other ways and things that they can do. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I think our number one uh, way of supporting would be like uh, submit, if you're under 35, would be like to submit a mock cover letter in support of a Youth Climate Corps, uh, which would be submitted to, it would go to your member of parliament. It would go to Minister Ian. It would go to Minister Freeland. And, and also we have a Youth Climate Corps Slack organizing space where people across the country that are interested in making a Youth Climate Corps a reality are, have joined on. These can be found, yeah, the access to our Slack is on our website. Outside of that, yeah, we have like events coming up. We're uh, working on a collaborative event with Pre50 for their uh, Power Up Day of Action on November 4th. Uh, because there's they're doing like a day of action on powering up like uh, what the renewable energy will look like in the future. And we think the Youth Climate Corps is is one of the ways in which renewable energy will be materializing in our country. And and so we're hoping and planning on doing an action with QP Ontario on November 4th. Yeah. Amazing. And so it's our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So I'm going to throw it back to you in a half a second for any last thoughts. But before I do, thank you so much. This has been Bushra Asgar, the Toronto Youth Climate Corps organizer with the Climate Emergency Unit. Please do the action if you are able and get involved in support if you can. And yes, any last thoughts? Yeah, no, I think to anyone listening that's, I think, feeling a bit apathetic or, or scared or not hopeful, I think it's just like those those feelings are so valid. And I feel like I go through like a whiplash of feeling really hopeful and then feeling a lot of despair like so many times a day because of things that are just like very real. But yeah, I think I think working on this campaign has been really cool because I'm able to work on, on the intersections of so many different issues. And uh, I'm really excited to to meet more people in Toronto who who are really interested on on working on these intersections and making this YCC a reality in Canada.